We return this morning to our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. We're in the fifth petition this morning. And let me just say before we go to the instruction from the Heidelberg Catechism that uh, this is really a, a, a topic that requires more than one sermon. Uh, we could do a whole sermon series on this alone. Uh, so there's more than I can say in one sermon. And I want to encourage you, I want to commend this book to you. It's Tim Keller's uh, newest book called Forgive, Why I Should and How I Can. And so I'm not going to preach an entire book to you this morning, so go and get the book and read it, and um, it's, it's excellent. Uh, now before we read the scripture, uh, before we turn to the Lord in prayer, let's receive instruction from the Heidelberg Catechism, number 126. We will read this responsively. What does the fifth request mean? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors means because of Christ's blood do not hold against us poor sinners that we are any of the sins we do or the evil that constantly clings to us. Forgive us just Now let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Lord, help us turn our hearts and our attention to you and hear what you will speak through the power of your Holy Spirit, through your Holy Word, for you speak peace to your people through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our scripture this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 6 and verses 9 through 15. Hear the word of God. It is written, pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Last Sunday, we noted that at the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer, the prayer shifts from focusing on the things of God to our own personal needs, asking God for daily bread or the basic necessities of life. The progression of the prayer thus far then has been the worship of the Father, the kingdom of the Father, and then the sustenance of the Father. So even as we have made this shift, we noted how the fourth petition helps us to continue to grow in our knowledge of God, who God is as our heavenly father and his goodness to us as his beloved children. We discussed how our God is a God who we can come to with all of our needs, whether we might consider these needs the most trivial things or whether they are 
things of great importance. Our Heavenly Father delights himself in providing for us what we need, both for our bodies and our souls. Which brings us now to the fifth petition of this prayer. The focus of this petition is the grace of the Father. As Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts. And this is a very logical progression in the prayer. As John Stott noted, forgiveness is as indispensable to the life and health of the soul as food is for the body. If daily bread is what our bodies need, forgiveness is what our souls need. And our Heavenly Father is, as we have said, concerned for both our physical and our spiritual needs. Now, as believers, we should all recognize the importance of being forgiven by God. This is no small thing that Jesus teaches us to pray for here. We should, of all people, understand the great offense our sin is to God, the separation that it causes us with God, and the tremendous price that God has paid to remove our sins from us. The picture that Scripture paints for us of our fallen condition is a dire one. Scripture tells us that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even those who the world would say are nice people who live good lives, who seem to be decent and morally upright, even they are found to be guilty before God. Scripture tells us none are righteous, not one. And our sin before God and against God has incurred such an insurmountable amount of debt that it is a debt that we could never repay. We should notice here that this is the word that Jesus uses in this prayer. He uses the word debt. We ask God to forgive us our debt, obviously meaning sin, but it comes with the connotation of something being owed, that the penalty of this debt carries with it a price. And what is the penalty of this debt owed on account of our sin? It is death. The wages of sin is death. John Calvin noted, Jesus calls sins debts because we owe penalty for them, and we could in no way satisfy it unless we were released by this forgiveness. So we find ourselves in a dilemma. We find ourselves in a dilemma over sin. It is serious. It is deadly serious. We need to be forgiven of our sin or we live at enmity with God. And we aren't climbing our way out. We aren't by our own efforts being set right and reconciled to God. We are only being buried deeper and deeper if we are left to our own devices. The good news for us, as Calvin went on to state, is that God has provided us with the necessary forgiveness of this debt. In the words of Calvin, this pardon comes of his free mercy, by which he himself generously wipes out these debts, exacting no payment from us, but making satisfaction to himself by his own mercy in Christ who once for all gave himself as a ransom. No believer then should make little of sin. It separates us from God, who is the giver of life, and the forgiveness of this sin comes 
at a great cost. God himself absorbs our debt. When the Bible tells us that our sin has been forgiven, it doesn't mean that God has merely looked past it, just simply forgotten about it, acted as though it didn't exist. Rather, God has dealt with it decisively according to his perfect justice. He has paid the price, as it were. As Calvin noted, Christ gave himself as a ransom. That's from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. Or as 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 states, that we were ransomed from the feudal ways with the precious blood of Christ that like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This was the tremendous cost of our debt. It required the sinless life of God's only son who died a sin-atoning, substitutionary, sacrificial death. Jesus took our sins onto himself and bore the penalty of these sins. Now, Peter would go on to say in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that our sin might be removed from us, that we might be dead to sin and alive in Christ. Or as Paul puts it in his letter to the Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, in you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is what God did for us, that our sins might be removed and remembered no more. This is what God did, that we might be reconciled to him and adopted by him as his beloved children. So praise the Lord for the forgiveness he grants to all who believe on Jesus Christ, who have placed faith in the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But here's what we need to, to understand. Even those who have been truly converted to Christ, have been filled with the Holy Spirit, being made alive together with Christ, have received a new nature in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, even they still sin. Even they still sin because our old fallen nature has not been fully eradicated from our lives. We have not yet been made perfect in holiness. We still daily wrestle with the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we must return again and again to the Lord, confessing our sin to him and receiving his forgiveness. So we have at one time, one and the same time, been forgiven. We have been fully justified with God. We are at peace with God. We have received the righteousness of Christ by placing faith in Jesus. And yet, we are still in need of daily forgiveness from the Lord. This is why Jesus instructs us to come to the Lord in prayer, asking the Lord continually to forgive us our debts. And this is the first lesson we learn from this fifth petition. We need to be daily forgiven of our sins. We need to constantly come to the Lord, confess our sins, repent of them, and be cleansed. If we don't, we lose the joy of our salvation. This is what David 
prays in Psalm 51 when he confesses his sin before the Lord. He asks the Lord to restore to him the joy of salvation. Why? Because when we revert to the old self and give in to temptation, we break fellowship with God. And we cannot live in a way that separates us from God. We cannot live in the guilt and shame of our sin. We we cannot do these things and continue to receive all the blessings that God has for us as his beloved children. We lose our joy. We lose our peace. We lose our freedom. So we cannot ignore our sin and act as though it doesn't matter. Nothing could matter more. And I think even unbelievers have some notion of this, whether they acknowledge it or not. There is guilt that needs resolution. There is relationship that needs restoration. And as much as we might try to ignore our sins, we will not escape from our debt and our guilt. The interesting thing is that Frederick Nietzsche claimed in the late 19th century that our guilt and shame was just some holdover from religion and all the moral reflexes that belief in God had created and that guilt and shame would eventually dissolve away as people move further and further away from these beliefs that he held to be nonsense. And after Nietzsche was Sigmund Freud who asserted that our guilt was really just impositions upon us by those who wanted to keep us under their power and influence. But guilt, he claimed, was in reality subjective. There is no objective moral realities, according to Freud. It needed then to be deconstructed and removed that we might be free. And all of these ideas were rooted in the philosophy of Karl Marx, who had earlier declared that moral claims were just ways that those in power sought to remain in power. Dearly beloved, I don't think I need to tell you that these are the thinkers and philosophies that have become dominant in our culture, and yet the experience of guilt and shame, surprise, surprise, has not diminished. We don't live in a guilt-free society, even though we live in a post-Christian society. And as much as we try to normalize sin and celebrate it, there is still a deep sense of guilt. In fact, I would argue that there seems to be more guilt now than ever. Our culture can't seem to shake the guilt and shame despite how hard we are trying. No matter how hard our culture has tried to relativize truth, guilt and shame will not go away. And we're seeing the consequences of that moral burden. There is a mental health crisis playing out in our country right now, which perhaps cannot be entirely attributed to the issue of guilt, but at the same time certainly has something to do with it. John Stott years ago told of the head of a large English mental hospital who said, I could dismiss half of my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. But rather than people taking their guilt to God, we see them doing everything they can in their own power to assuage it. People try in lots of ways to deal with a moral burden like Adam and Eve 
did with the fig leaves, unsuccessfully trying to stitch things together that will not suffice to cover their shame and remove their guilt. One of the things we see people doing is beating themselves up over silly things that are completely outside of their control. This is why we have so many people apologizing for the color of their skin or their supposed privilege or the atrocities of the distant past. They, they feel the weight of guilt and in absolute ridiculous fashion have tried to deal with it by apologizing for parts of themselves that really are morally neutral. But the thought is that maybe if we can apologize enough, maybe if we beat ourselves up enough, this guilt will be atoned for and go away. Really interestingly, at the same time, we also see people just flat out refusing to take any responsibility for their sin by shifting the blame. They do this by trying to make it look virtuous. Tim Keller in this book, I... Uh, encourage you to read, forgive, sets uh, some nice examples out for us. People say things like this, I'm not greedy, I'm just thrifty. I'm not proud, I'm just assertive. I don't drink too much, I'm just the life of the party. I'm not abrasive, I just tell it like it is. Or perhaps sin can just be blamed on someone else. Well, I wouldn't have cheated on my wife if she had been a better spouse. I wouldn't have hit her if she hadn't provoked me. I wouldn't have taken the money if they had given me what I deserved all along. Right? This is what we see people doing. Keller calls all of these things counterfeits of repentance. They are all the things we do to try to avoid acknowledging our sin, acknowledging who truly is the offended party of our sin, taking responsibility for it, and turning from it. Now, brothers and sisters, as we see this playing out all around us, we don't want to be influenced by the world in these ways. We are seeing plainly the world's failure to deal with guilt and the reality that guilt undealt with does not go away. It only builds and worsens. So we don't want to make little of our sins. We should desire to keep a short account with God, right? Don't let your debts stack up. Turn away from your sin by turning to God and be forgiven and do it on a regular basis. And here's the good news for us. The wonderful news is that God freely offers forgiveness. Jesus invites us here to, to come and to confess our sins that we might be forgiven. And as believers, we have assurance that when we come to God in confession and repentance, that he will forgive us of our sins. This is what God has promised us in his word. First John Chapter 1, verse 9 tells us, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What an amazing assurance this is. As James Montgomery Boyce so beautifully articulates, there cannot be a greater promise than that that we can be absolutely certain of the forgiveness of sins and that we can be certain because the faith forgiveness is based upon the faithfulness and justice of God. 
To what is God faithful? To his promise. God has promised to forgive and he does not break his word. What is more, he is just in his forgiveness. The Lord Jesus Christ has paid the full price for our sin. On the basis of that fact, the justice of God necessarily requires him to grant us full forgiveness. Full forgiveness. It is a wonderful truth for it means that God has made the provision in advance for our daily and sometimes hourly cleansing from sin and that his faithfulness and justice stand behind these promises. So dearly beloved, we don't have to live lives burdened by guilt. We don't have to live lives under the power of sin. In Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness. Come to the Father for cleansing. Come often to the Father for cleansing. Ask him to forgive you of your debts. It is incredibly important for our spiritual health that we regularly confess our sins and receive forgiveness. But that's not all, is it? We haven't yet dealt with this entire petition, have we? And perhaps what really strikes us if we are paying attention as we pray this prayer is the second part of this petition. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The second part of this petition is a portion that made St. Augustine call this request the terrible petition. Because he realized that if we pray this petition with an unforgiving heart, we are actually asking God not to forgive us our sins. And so we have a second major lesson to be learned in this petition. Not only do we need to daily confess our sins and be forgiven of them, but as we do, we must remember that in the words of John Piper, an unforgiving heart is an unforgiven heart. An unforgiving heart is an unforgiven heart. So just as God has forgiven us, we must forgive others. Now, this might immediately raise some questions in our minds. Is offering forgiveness a condition by which we are forgiven? Or in other words, is Jesus teaching that there are things we must do to earn forgiveness from God? That is sort of how it seems, right? And so, just so no one misses the point, Jesus adds this teaching in these verses 14 and 50 on to the end of the prayer. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So, do we have to earn forgiveness? Is there something we must do to merit forgiveness from God? The answer is no. We cannot earn God's forgiveness. The uniform witness of Scripture is that forgiveness is freely given to us by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But, here's the but. There is an important and somewhat terrifying qualification here, which recognizes that we have no right to seek forgiveness from God if we are withholding forgiveness from others. It's the very same lesson that Jesus was teaching in the parable that we call the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. 
This is a parable that features a servant who is brought before a king with an enormous debt, which he could never repay. And when the king orders that the man, his wife, his children, and all that they have be sold, the servant begs patience of the king. And the king, who is merciful, then releases him from the debt and forgives it. The man hasn't even asked for that, but the Lord forgives his debt. But then that same servant goes out and demands that a fellow servant repay him a very small debt. When the, uh, that other servant was, uh, is unable to pay, the first servant has him thrown into prison, refusing to have mercy on him as he has just been shown mercy. When the king learns of what happened, the, the first servant is chastised is, and is himself thrown into prison. And Jesus ends the parable in this way. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It isn't that forgiveness is earned. Remember, the the servant in the parable had already been forgiven. Rather, the issue centers on the reality of recognizing the enormity of our own sin against God, the greatness of God's forgiveness toward us, and then those realities become the basis for how we treat others. This is what Scripture commands of us, that we forgive as God has forgiven us in Christ. So as John Stott explains, this certainly does not mean that our forgiveness of others earns us the right to be forgiven. It is rather that God forgives only the penitent and that one of the chief evidences of true penitence is a forgiving spirit. Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it, provi- it proves that we have minimized our own. It is the disparity between the size of debts, which is the main point of the parable of the merciful, unmerciful servant. One who has truly cast himself on the mercies of God and has been forgiven will be prepared to forgive the 77 times that Jesus calls us to, because there is no offense against any of us which compares with our sins against God. If God has forgiven us, then we ought to forgive others. And if we are unwilling to forgive, then we don't truly understand the depth of our own sin and haven't possibly experienced the grace of being forgiven of it. So our own forgiveness and the forgiveness we extend to others are inextricably bound up together. As Sinclair Ferguson writes, the two are inseparably linked for the man who knows his debt before God and turns to him for forgiveness is the recipient of such grace that he cannot but share it with others. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another with the love of forgiveness. Do you see? Do you see why this prayer of blessing can become for us a self-inflicted curse when we come to it with an unforgiving heart? We must be very careful then about what we are asking of the Lord. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek the Lord's forgiveness. But what it does mean is that we should acknowledge the reality of our own sin and seek to understand what it means to truly forgive someone who has wronged us. 
And we must be intentional to forgive. Again, this is an area that we must be careful not to take our cues from the world around us. This too is a matter that has fallen into question in our current culture. You see, there are some who are saying that offering forgiveness can be harmful and dangerous. There's a recent example. After the relatives of the nine black churchgoers killed in the Charleston, South Carolina shooting publicly forgave Dylan Roof, the shooter, for the cold-blooded murder of their loved ones at a Bible study, a Washington Post opinion writer wrote this about their offer of forgiveness. Quote, Our constant forgiveness only perpetuates the cycles of attacks and abuse. An argument was made that forgiveness somehow allows abusers to act with impunity by forcing the victim to turn the other cheek, which then halts the pursuit of justice. In a world that has rejected God, the power of forgiveness and reconciliation seems to be nothing more than a fairy tale. This is the sad reality of where we are as a culture. We demand to live in bitterness and anger and resentment. We pursue revenge because we can't believe in the possibility of forgiveness and reconciliation. We must set things right because no one else will. But are justice and forgiveness really at odds with one another? Does forgiveness mean that we must give up justice? Not at all. What forgiveness requires of us is to release our bitterness and anger and resentment toward the offender. It's about letting go of our need to hear that we were right after all. It's about giving up our desire for revenge. It's about acknowledging that vengeance belongs to the Lord and trusting God to execute it according to his perfect wisdom. After all, Sin is ultimately an offense against him. He is the one who must offer forgiveness and exact punishment. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't a possibility for worldly consequences for those who commit offenses. Dylan Roof was forgiven by the family members of his victims. He is still facing the death penalty, and rightly so. Forgiving someone doesn't mean that we are required to allow the offender to continue to perpetuate a crime or release the offender from the consequences of their wrongdoing. If you are in an abusive relationship, what the Bible says about forgiveness does not call you to remain in that situation. You don't have to stay in toxic relationships. But what the world doesn't want to hear is that forgiveness requires us to absorb the offense to some extent. We are to follow Jesus in the way that he forgives. Being hurt and not demanding repayment. It's understanding that it's understanding the, the person has harmed you. This is the debt. They are indebted to you. But in forgiving the person, you are refusing to exact that payment from him or her. It doesn't go away. You absorb it. Now, what we want is to exact the payment, isn't it? We want the person to pay 
as it is so often said. We want the person to pay by coming and groveling before us, admitting that we were right. We want the person to pay by having bad things happen to him or her. We want the person to pay by having his or her name drugged through the mud. And so in very practical terms, absorbing the offense means you not only aren't seeking payback, you're not trying to punish the person in some way, you aren't wishing ill of him or her either, nor are you speaking ill of him or her. You can't say you've forgiven the person while you're going around talking about the person under the guise of warning others about his or her misgivings. You can't say that you've forgiven the person while you're being cold towards him or her. What Jesus actually commands is that we pray for our enemies, and not just that God would pour out his wrath on them, but that he would bless them. So if we're being honest with ourselves, it is a painful and difficult thing to forgive someone for wronging us. It it requires us to empty ourselves of self-seeking. We're not out there looking for an apology or for anything else from the offender. Our hope should be that we would be reconciled to the offender if possible. But if that person will not admit their guilt, if that person refuses to seek forgiveness or refuses to be reconciled to us, it still doesn't give us permission to withhold forgiveness. As C.S. Lewis noted about Jesus' teaching on this matter, Quote, no part of his teaching is clear. There are no exceptions to it. He he doesn't say that we are to forgive other people's sins provided they are not too frightful or provided there are extenuating circumstances or anything of that sort. We are to forgive then all, however spiteful, however mean, however often they are repeated. If we don't, we shall be forgiven none of our own. We must then be very careful not to hold a death grip on our grudges. We should be very concerned with the state of our soul if we have no desire to forgive. It is indicative of a sick soul. And consider what a failure to forgive says about us and does to us. It says that we don't understand our own sinfulness and the extent of the Lord's forgiveness of our sins. It it says that we are willing to allow the root of self-pity to take root in our heart. It it says that we are unconcerned with isolation and bitterness in our relationships. And, And these things only continue to grow if they're not dealt with, which only compounds the brokenness of the relationship with the one we have failed to forgive. And then we will be quicker to fault find, become further hurt by any little thing, And our unhealthy relationship with others takes its toll on our relationship with the Lord. A forgiving spirit, on the other hand, is a sign of grace in our lives. It is a sign of grace because it goes beyond what we are capable of on our own. When thinking about forgiveness, we're quickly reminded that to err is human, but to forgive is divine. The reality is that forgiveness requires of us a spiritual humility to see ourselves as sinners with the same potential to harm others and as sinners forgiven by the grace of God despite our offenses against God. 
It's this understanding of our own need for forgiveness that encourages our forgiveness of others. And even with this understanding, we still need God's help. If we are to truly forgive each other, just as Christ forgave us, then we need the Lord's help. We need the assistance of the Holy Spirit who will give us love and patience and gentleness and self-control. We need to be concerned that God would be glorified. We need to be able to yield ourselves and our desires to the Lord's will. We need to be able to let God be God and refrain from being the judge. And, and I pray that, that as we do this, that we would not just see forgiveness as some obligation or burden that the Lord has given to us. I, I pray that we would see it as a great privilege. The Lord Jesus, in forgiving us, gives us the power and the authority as his people to forgive. And there is tremendous need for forgiveness because we are all sinners. There will be offense in this life. We will hurt one another. And into this, Jesus tells us to forgive others in his name, and they will be forgiven. What a, what a remarkable thing. Let us then not fail to seek forgiveness. Let us not fail to withhold forgiveness. And may God be glorified as we receive his forgiveness and live as his redeemed people, forgiving others as we ourselves have been forgiven. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do give you all thanks and praise. Lord, that you have forgiven us even while we were yet enemies. Lord, you have sent your son to die on a cross for us that we might have the debt of our sin fully paid, that we might be forgiven of our sin, that we might be reconciled to you. Lord, help us to, to constantly turn to you, confessing our sins. Lord, receiving your forgiveness in Christ. Lord, and from that, may we turn and love others as we have first been loved by you. And may that love take the form of forgiveness, Lord, as we are wronged in this fallen world. Lord, help us to do that by your Spirit, and may the world see in us a glimpse of your glory and your kingdom. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Believer, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From this he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, 